Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne together with all those that you have called yourself to render the worship that you alone are worthy to receive and are giving to yourself and have caused us to participate in the recognition of who you are through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we come to worship you through your word, your word being taught and preached and believed upon by your people that they may see your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ, See your glory, that is Jesus Christ. May you open the scriptures to us. May you open the hearts of your people who are here now and those who shall hear this teaching. That they may see Christ as the reason why they exist. And Christ as the only reason for them to be in the presence of God. Because Christ, in coming and saving us, he was revealing God to us, and he was being exalted in this work. So, Lord, as we have our communion today, we ask that your people will reflect on the person of Christ and on the importance of the work that he did in saving us, from that which we could not save ourselves from, that which even the best of men with the best resources that this world can give would not even be able to redeem themselves from hell, not even for a single hour. And yet, Lord, we hear the testimony of your Son saying on the cross, it's finished. And yes, indeed, the redemption of God's people was finished on the cross. And those of us who were in the prison of death, we were released. We were set free. And Lord, we thank you now for your word. May your Holy Spirit help us with understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel 9-14 to 14, I decided to just get that part of the chapter because the story does not begin there but will reference the other parts of chapter 11 and connect them to this section of chapter 12. Second Samuel 12, 9 to 14. This is what it reads. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you before your very 
eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. The story of the Bible is a story about Jesus Christ. It is a story of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the revelation of the righteousness of God, and the atoning work by our Lord Jesus. And this atoning work, the gospel, has been preached by God, who alone is able to preach Christ, even preach Christ this way that we are going to learn today. And as we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord, as we partake of Holy Communion, we also have to take time to teach the theology of the atonement. Because what we see in the church world is that the gospel, the atonement, are taken as obvious. A lot of people think they know what there is to know about the redemption that is in Christ. So that is always assumed. People come to church and they say, no, don't tell me about Jesus. I already know about Jesus. Tell me about me. That is the approach that the church world has when it comes to preaching the gospel. And in the process, they don't preach Christ, they preach themselves. And we here today have such teaching of the need of atonement by the death of our Lord Jesus. And this is taught in this story of David and Bathsheba. And of course, the atonement, as we shall learn later, in our teaching from the book of John, has been the subject of the whole Bible. Right from Genesis, God has always been talking about His Son. The moment that God started talking to man, guess what He was talking about? He was talking about the gospel. The moment that God started talking to man, He was talking about the gospel. And He has not stopped talking about his son. So the story that we are going to learn is not a story of infant salvation. It is not a story of infant salvation, but it's a story of the need and necessity of the atonement that is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Very, very, very important. 
for us to understand that when we approach this story, when we approach any story of the Bible, we have to try and find out what is God teaching about Jesus and the work of Jesus. That is why these stories were recorded for us as we are going to expand later, as I said in the book of John, as I was preparing this sermon, I was actually amazed that this sermon and the next sermon I just like one sermon. I could just keep talking without even telling you that we have switched to John. And that was not by my design. I just happened to be there by the Lord's design. So the story of David and Bathsheba goes something like this. From 2 Samuel 10, verse 1, we are told that it is springtime. And this was the time that was, that had not been settled, that had not been finished before the winter were resumed. People would fight and take a break and then come back to it and say, well, we'll finish this in the spring. So in the spring, the kings would lead their armies back in war. And we are told that here, David, on this occasion, he decided to stay at home. He decided not to go and lead the army of Israel to fight against the Ammonites. So instead, he had his army commander, Joab, who led the children of Israel in the battle. And it was when King David was at home when this happened. 2 Samuel 11, 2-5. 2 Samuel 11, 2-5. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David was just lucky that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, just happened to be bathing at the same time that David decided to take a walk on the roof of the palace. This is how a lot of Armenians would read the story. It just so happened that David was at home and he saw this woman and guess what? He sinned. But when we get deeper into the theology that was represented in this story, you realize that it was all by God's doing. It was all by God's doing. And then that we have a lot of people saying, but God cannot lead people to do that. No, he does. If you continue to read the story, 
Remember what God said to David through the prophet Nathan. He said, I am going to have your wives. I'm going to give them to people close to you so that they will sleep with them in the open. And it actually happened. And God was controlling every event of that. It will happen the way that he had said it to happen. From reading this story, it seems that Bathsheba and Uriah were very close neighbors of the king. Because from the top of the palace, King David was able to see Bathsheba and to see that she was bathing. But not only that, he also observed that she was a very beautiful woman. Don't miss all that because those are breadcrumbs for the theology. She was a beautiful woman and so he determined to inquire about her. And it turns out she was none other than Bathsheba, the wife of one of Dave's soldiers. But of course, this did not deter the king from wanting her for himself. But there's more. David was not the only bad person in this transaction. But Sheba also was plotting to entice the king because there was no reason for her to be bathing in the open where she could easily be seen by the king. Remember, it's springtime. And what happens in springtime? The sun does not set as early as it does in the winter. So the time that she's taking a, a bath is actually still in the day, although it's evening. If you're thinking 6, 7 o'clock in spring, guess what? There's still light. And this day was a perfect day because her husband Uriah was not at home, but had gone with Job to fight against the Ammonizer. And basically, Bathsheba here was putting herself on a big billboard and advertising herself to the king and saying, come get me. And so the king ordered that she be brought to him immediately, even after he had just been told that she was the wife of Uriah, whom David would have known. So we see the depravity of the king, even the one who is the man after God's own heart. But we are sovereign grace people. So we do not leave the understanding of the events to just the actions of man. We interpret the actions of man by our understanding of the sovereign hand of God in all the affairs of man. It is the sovereign hand of God that is moving every inch of this story because God intends to preach and teach Christ. God intends to preach and teach his son and 
if we have to read this story right as I indicated, we have to see Christ in this story. Anyone can write an interesting story. Anybody can write a very enticing story. But only God can preach Christ this way. So David sleeps with Uriah's wife and she gets pregnant. And she tells David, and David is scared and tries to cover up the scandal like a good politician. David sends Uriah from the battlefield that he may come home and create an opportunity to cover up for his sin. David is thinking, if Uriah comes home, then it will be easy to say, but Seba was pregnant with Uriah's child. And no one would ever know the truth. But in 2 Samuel 11, verses 6 to 12, we have an account. We have an account of how David was trying to conceal the matter. David was trying to conceal the matter. He makes Uriah drunk and hopes that under the influence, he would go home to his wife. But unfortunately, Uriah does not go home. Uriah is adamant. He does not go home. And yet, the interesting thing about this story is that Uriah knows nothing about what is happening. Uriah knows nothing about what is happening, and yet he refuses to go home. Why? Because it's God who is behind the sins. The sin of David has to be exposed this way because God has a greater purpose in this story. So Dave's first trick to get Uriah to go home to his wife hits a snag. And so he comes with plan B. But that plan B was God's plan A. We may have plan C, D, E to Z, but with respect to God, it's plan A. So he sends, he sends a note with Uriah back to Job. And in it, David gives instructions that Uriah should be killed. And in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen, we hear this. In it, he, David, wrote and said, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Joab follows the instructions and sure enough, the battle rages and Uriah gets killed and Dave's plan B has worked for now. But again, it's God's plan A. The wife is going to be David's and the people of Israel will never know what really happened to Uriah or what really happened to, to Bathsheba and David 
Because after Uriah is dead, it's easy for David to say, oh, she is a widow, and I am the king, I can get married to her. So this will be something acceptable in the eyes of the people of Israel, but God is going to make sure that he reveals to David what he has done. Second Samuel 11, 26-27 When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan the prophet comes and he tells David that the Lord was aware of what had just happened and that he was displeased with him. And Nathan comes, if you remember reading the story, and, and tells of a story as if beating about the bush of a certain rich man and a certain poor man. The poor man had a ewe lamb that was dear to him and was the only one that he had. And one day, the rich man had a visitor at his house. And he decided to take and slaughter the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and not a lamb from among his own flock. On hearing this, David got mad. He burned with anger and said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man, David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Now hear the charges of the Lord against King David. Hear the charges of the Lord against King David. Second Samuel 12, 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So we have a threefold accusation here from the Lord. The, and the charges are David is being charged of despising the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. And secondly, 
he murdered Uriah's wife. And not only that, he also committed adultery by taking by Sheba. So now Nathan the prophet is going to pronounce the punishment that the Lord is going to put on David. And he says in 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 12, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And as I said earlier, this is one of the most dramatic stories that you can read in the Bible. Just continue reading Second Samuel and see how everything played out according to what God has said was going to happen to David and his house. But let us get more understanding. Let us get more understanding. Hear King Dave's confession after he learned that he was the very man Nathan the prophet was talking about. Read 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 14. 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. We have to see something here as we develop the teaching. When the king was approached by Nathan, when he realized that he was the man that Nathan was talking about, the man who had sinned against the Lord, he did not try to hide his sin. He did not try to beat about the bush. He did not say, but Lord, the woman was too beautiful, and I just could not resist her. He did not say, but it was Bathsheba's fault that I fell into sin. David confesses his sin before the Lord. And he says, yes, Lord, I agree with the charges that you have leveled against me. I have sinned against the Lord. And it is this confession that agrees with what God is saying about you that pleases the Lord. You have to agree with God about what he is saying about yourself. So to confess, to make a confession, means taking the side of God against yourself. You are agreeing with God and everything that he is saying about you. So Nathan replied and said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Why nothing? David is a murderer. 
He is supposed to die. Exodus 21:12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. David is supposed to be stoned to death because he broke the law of God. David has just killed a man and he is supposed to die. But not only that. David has also broken God's law. Leviticus 20 verse 10. Leviticus 20 verse 10. And this is what he says. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The king has a huge problem. He has committed two offenses that require death. He has committed murder and has committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. And he and Bathsheba should be put to death. They should be taken out in the open and be stoned to death. But the Lord comes and says, I have taken your sin away. You are not going to die. Why? And what are we supposed to see from that statement? David and Bathsheba are supposed to die. That is what the law says. What we see here is how God removes sin away from you. If the Lord does not speak to have your sin removed from you, your sin shall forever abide on you. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the disciples. He said, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. So you are clean because the Lord has said, I have taken your sin away from you. The scriptures are clear to say in many places that a soul that sins shall surely die. The soul that sins shall surely die and there are no exceptions. But the scriptures are also clear to say it is the Lord who takes away sin. It is God alone who justifies sinners by his word and not the pope or the priest or anybody. God alone is the one who can make a pronouncement that you are not going to die because he alone is able to forgive sin. And he alone is the one that you sin against. You don't sin against men. You sin against the Lord. And if you hear the confession of David, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Did he not sin against Uriah? Yes, he did something wrong, something sinful against Uriah. But he didn't say, 
Well, I've sinned against Uriah. No, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Because all sin can only be done against a holy and righteous God. Again, whilst we are still talking about this, it is not our faith or repentance or works that removes sin, but the pronouncement of the Lord. The Lord said, I have taken your sin away. There are two statements there, and they are beautiful statements. He says, I have taken your sin away. And the second part of the statement is, you are not going to die. I have taken your sin away from you, and guess what? Because of that, you are not going to die. God is saying, I have justified you, and by my declaration, I see you as righteous and blameless before me. I have justified you not because you are righteous or have become righteous in yourself, because left yourself, guess what, David? You are a murderer and an adulterer. And yet I have made this pronouncement that you are as good as righteous. Let's work this. If David was supposed to die, then Bathsheba was also supposed to die. But we don't have anything that was said of Bathsheba. But we know that Bathsheba did not die. What happens to Bathsheba? What happened to her that she lived? Because if she is left to herself, the law is calling on her to be stoned. The law is condemning Bathsheba. She also has to be condemned to die. Bathsheba lives. Bathsheba lives because David lived. Bathsheba lived because David was justified. Because the statement by God to David to say, I have taken your sin away from you, you shall not die, is saying, I have justified you, David. And so Bathsheba lives because David was justified. If David is not justified, guess what? Bathsheba dies. What do we see? When you are reading the Old Testament, David, when you are talking about a person whose life represented Jesus Christ, it's King David. So David is a type of Christ. David is a type of Christ. David has a sentence of death on him, but he lives. He has the sentence of death on him, but he lives. He is justified by God. So Bathsheba lives on account of the justification of David. We are getting close. Bathsheba, we've been told, was not just a woman. She was a beautiful woman. 
who though an adulteress was loved by David. And we see that David, even knowing what the law said about adultery and murder, David is prepared to die for her that he may possess her. David had the law. He was the king of Israel. He knew what the law said about murder and adultery. And yet, he loves Bathsheba so much that he is willing to die for her. David knows what the law of God says about taking someone's wife. He knows the penalty of death. And yet he risks his life for her. So who is this Bathsheba? Who is Bathsheba? Bathsheba is a type of the church. Bathsheba is the type of the church. What do we mean by type? What do we mean by type? We mean a person, an event, or an institution in the Old Testament that foreshadowed the person and work of Jesus Christ and the church. So Bathsheba is a type of the church, the body of Christ that has fallen into sin and adultery and is supposed to be condemned to death by the law of God. And King David is the type of Christ. King David is the type of Christ who comes and is prepared to die for the sake of the bride. Listen to this. If King David is not justified by God, his bride is also condemned together with him. But Sheba is supposed to die. And yet she lives because her husband, King David, another type of Christ was justified by God. And yet the justification of King David was not in himself because King David was a sinner as we have just learned. So in what way could King David be justified? David's justification was in another. The justification of David was in another. It was in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, when you are reading the New Testament, he is called the son of David. And this is the mystery of the gospel and the church. And that is the mystery of the story of David and Bathsheba. It is on account of David's greater son, Jesus, that the church is redeemed and is justified. If Jesus is not justified to be the son of God by the resurrection, he remains condemned in the grave as a sinner on account of our imputed sins. However, the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ 
was raised triumphant. He paid for our sins and was resurrected for our justification. So King David was not killed. That by him and through him and his life and his justification, his bride could also be justified and have life. But there's more. It's going to get clearer and clearer as we move. Jesus was raised from the dead because he was the sinless son of God. Not only that. He was also raised from the dead because he had finished paying for the sins of his church, his bride. But how did David escape death? We have to tie this to Jesus if we have to understand the story. As I said earlier, it was not enough for the Lord to just say, I have taken your sin away. There had to be something that was in view that God was looking at as the basis on which he was going to make that pronouncement on David and Bathsheba. What do the scriptures say about sin and remission of sin? Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, which means all sin. If you have to purify anything, it has to be purified by the death of something. That's what that is saying. You cannot get blood by just pricking something. That's not what they're saying. The scripture is saying for there to be purification, there has to be of necessity the death of a substitute. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. When you read the story of David and Bathsheba, we learn that they did not offer a sacrifice. They did not offer a sacrifice and neither did they die. They didn't die and they didn't offer a sacrifice. But here, how David and Bathsheba actually lived. They actually did offer a sacrifice, but they did not offer a sacrifice. It's God who offered a sacrifice. Listen to 2 Samuel 12, 14. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. The son born to you will die. The son that was born to King David and Bathsheba had to die. The son of David had to die. The innocent son of David had to die after seven days. The innocent son of David had to die for them. But which son? Which son? We know the son is innocent, but which son? 
because the scriptures tell us that it is impossible for another human being to redeem another. So the death of this innocent child that David and Bathsheba had could not have been the basis of justification. And yet God comes and says, your son shall surely die. And guess what? I have forgiven you, you shall not die. Listen to Psalm 49, 79. No man can by any means redeem his brother or mother or father. Or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. So the son that Bathsheba and David had could not have had enough resources to redeem mama and daddy. And yet God says, on this basis is your justification. So the question that we have to answer then is, which son of David died? Which son of David died? Yes, the son that David and Bathsheba had died, but he was not enough to redeem his parents. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba, but he did not die for Bathsheba. He did not die for David. Which son then was the basis for the justification of David? It has to be the son of David, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who died for Bathsheba and David. And this is already in the picture because in 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant. And this is the covenant that God makes with David about his greater son. God comes to David and he makes this covenant that brings this greater son whose kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. And this is the son who shall come and build a house for the name of the Lord and establish a throne that is forever. So Jesus Christ is the greater son of David. This is the son who shall surely die. So the scriptures are already telling us that Jesus Christ came to do it, to die. Jesus Christ came to die. And this is the same teaching that you find even in the book of John. John shows up and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He comes and he is a ransom. He is a ransom for his people. So your son shall surely die. It's not just about the immediate son that David had with Bathsheba. That statement is a prophecy. 
is a prophetic statement that comes as a curse, but brings the blessing of the Messiah. It is a prophecy of the coming of Dave's greatest son who must surely die for the sins of his people. And it is upon the promise of the death of Jesus Christ that the church is justified. It is upon the promise of the death of Jesus that you are justified. A lot of people will say, oh, okay, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? They were saved on the basis of the work of Christ that was in the future. Because God already knew what he was doing. There was not anything difficult for God to do. But listen to this. But Sheba would be pregnant again and give birth to King Solomon. And King Solomon was another type of Christ. And he builds the temple. King Solomon is raised up in glory. He is raised up in wisdom. And that was all typifying of our Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. So in King Solomon, we have the resurrection of Christ. This first son that David had with Bathsheba is the death of Christ. The birth of Solomon and his glory is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what is happening. And Bathsheba only had two kids. The one who died and the one who resurrected in glory. And listen to even the name that was given Solomon. Solomon's name, actually Solomon had two names. He's, Solomon means peace. And then the Lord said, you call him Jedediah, which means for the Lord's sake, Solomon is peace. Why? Because in the resurrection of Jesus, there is peace with God. In the resurrection of Jesus, there is peace with God. Because the Lord Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you have peace with God because the payment that God required of your sin was fully paid for. But there's something, some interesting twist. These are amazing things that I just see and I, got, I get blown away. Why did the Holy Spirit tell us that Bathsheba had just finished her purification ritual. She had just finished a cycle, and on that day, she was doing a purification ritual. To my mind, to my understanding of science, Bathsheba could not have been pregnant. She could not have been able to conceive. And yet, she conceived a child miraculously. But Sheba should not have been able to get pregnant 
immediately after the purification ritual because it means she just finished a cycle. So what that means is this child who must surely die for their sins also has to be a miraculous baby. Our Lord Jesus Christ had to be conceived miraculously. Just some things that I saw. Now, to really show you that this story is not an accident. This story is the basis of the teaching of justification in the New Testament. This very story. This is the basis of the gospel. The gospel that we preach is based on this very story and the words that came from this story. So this could not have been by accident. Listen to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 verses 1 to 5. This is a psalm that David wrote after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And this is what David said by the Holy Spirit. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see that in the statement that we just had from 2 Samuel 12? And then God draws this theology from the story of David and gives it to Apostle Paul and says, this is how sinful men and women are justified. This is how I've always justified men and women. Romans 4, 6 to 8. Romans 4, 6 to 8. So even David, Apostle Paul, is teaching the doctrine of justification. He says, so even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin. And when you're reading justification in the book of Romans, there are two Old Testament stories that are the basis of the doctrine of justification. They are Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and the story of David. They come from this story of David and Bathsheba. So God took all that effort with David and Bathsheba that he may teach the doctrine of justification. And says when it comes to justification, there's none born of a woman 
one who is born in iniquity, who can stand unless the Lord forgives them by grace. And those that have been forgiven, God does not. Those that have been forgiven, those that have confessed their sin, will never again be condemned. God will never count their sin. He will never bring their sin to remembrance anymore. God cannot remember that which is not there. Your sin is as good as not having been there even in the first place. And that is sovereignty. That is a sovereign grace gospel. That is good news. And that is the God of the Bible. That is the God of the Bible. I, I want to draw your attention again to another psalm. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We want to read all of it. We'll read some of it. Because this psalm also was written in the aftermath of David and Bathsheba's story. This psalm was written because of this story of David and Bathsheba. This is what it says. Psalm 51, I'm going to read 1 to 12. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness or according to your mercy or according to your grace. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, the basis of forgiveness of sins. He is appealing to the compassion, to the grace of God as the basis on which his transgressions can be blotted out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. So David acknowledges his depravity. And he says, left to myself, this is who I am. I was born like this. But being born like this is not the basis of your justification. You can't say, oh, it's okay because I was born this way. Therefore, leave me alone because I was born this way. No, that doesn't work. God says, yes, I know you were conceived in iniquity, but I still have to forgive you in the way that I forgive sinners. And that is when you repent and confess your sin before the Lord. Verse 6 of Psalm 51. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot all blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David did not ever lose his salvation. He was praying that God will give him the grace to glory again in the joy of the salvation that he already had. Restore to me the joy. He used to have the joy of salvation, but that joy had been taken away by his sin. And he's saying, in my confession of my sin, Lord, be gracious to me and restore that joy that I used to have of your salvation. So when you find yourself in sin, it's not saying that you have lost your salvation. It's just saying that you have lost the joy of salvation. Not salvation itself. So then the statement that David, actually as I was reading that, I was like, okay, that's two, three sermons from the Psalms. One of these days, the Lord willing is going to take me the Psalms and we're going to preach Christ from them. But this is what I want you to understand as much as we are learning about Christ. Is when the story of David and Bathsheba is talked about, it's mostly quoted as the theology of infant salvation. It's not the theology of infant salvation at all. It's the theology of the need of atonement for one who has broken God's law, of which the child who died was just a type of the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who would come and die and be the basis on which David and Bathsheba and all of God's people would live and not die. That was the basis. And also, this was telling us that the dead do not come back to the living. If someone dies, the ones who are living on this side are the ones who have to go to the other world. But then with everything that we know from the teaching of the New Testament, it's not always that if an infant dies, then automatically the parents have to be rejoined to their infant. It can be. The parents have to be Christians. If the parents are Christians, they have a greater chance of being reunited with their child. Because the son of David who died, the one that he had with Bathsheba, is a type of Christ. And a type of Christ is always an elect person. You can't be a type of Christ and go to hell. A type of Christ is someone who is already chosen of God to preach Christ. So they are someone who belongs to Christ already. So David, being the man after God's own heart, could say that by the Holy Spirit that he was going to be reunited with his son. Why? Because he, David, was the type of Christ and his son was the type of Christ. 
So for that, it works. But this is where understanding proper theology is important. And this is why sovereign grace theology is important. Because in sovereign grace theology, which is what the Bible teaches, there's nothing that gets in the way for an infant who can't profess faith to be saved by God. Because the basis of salvation is not them. The basis of salvation is the finished work of Christ. And Christ and Christ alone is the merit on which anyone who ever gets saved, whether they were born, deaf, blind, mute, whatever, if they die two years, two months being born, Christ is the only way of justification. So we don't have any issue as sovereign grace people because we know that God is sovereign. If he wants to save a child who dies, there's nothing that gets in the way. It is he who justifies. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So if the Lord has justified, he has justified. So this teaching, when we deal with people who have lost children, they have to be Christians. And if they're Christians, we have room to tell them the truth, that there's opportunity for that to happen. We never know what the Lord is doing with all these things. But we have a gospel that gives hope to all men. Because if the child was elect, they'll be with the Lord. And even if these parents who may not believe right now, we don't know, maybe the Lord is using this situation to bring them to the knowledge of Christ and save them. And to tell them that the only way that you ever have any hope whatsoever in eternity to see your child again is if you come to Christ. Okay, so it's not just, oh, we are sorry you lost your child. No, if you don't repent and believe in Jesus, you too shall perish. You have to come to Christ. You have to come to Christ. So, when we talk about infant salvation, uh, as I said, we have to acknowledge the full sufficiency of Christ and his gospel to save. If we do that, we have no problem whatsoever to explain that. So this is where we are as we prepare for a table. We have had many people who have done what Bathsheba and David did. Many, many, many people who have done that. Even worse. But those were condemned. Those were condemned. And even some amongst us have done that. Or even worse. But we have not died. And we have not died for one and one reason alone. Because of Jesus Christ and God's grace. The Lord requires all that would come to him and partake of the blessing of forgiveness of sins to make a confession. All God's people have to make a true confession of their sin before the Lord and say, I have sinned against the Lord. And every time that man 
have sinned and made a confession. Go read the Bible. God always forgives. God always forgives any who makes a confession of their sin and repent. He always says, I have taken away your sin. I have taken away your sin and you are not going to die. You are not going to die. There's no better news that you ever hear that God would come to you and say, The cell, I have taken away your sin. And not only that, you are not going to die. Praise the Lord that you are not going to die. Because he has said you are going to live. And you live by faith alone in the son of David. The Lord Jesus Christ who surely died on the cross to bear your sins. Jesus did not die on the cross as an example of suffering. That you may emulate him in suffering. Jesus Christ died on the cross as sin payment. He was making full restitution. He was reconciling all of God's people. Those who believe in him, those are the ones who shall live because of what Christ has done. And this is how we can lay hold of that forgiveness. We should never get tired of hearing about forgiveness of sins. But you guys, before you even start your car, you'll be sinning. Before you even get home, you've already sinned. And you don't even need help in sinning just by yourself. Just lying in your bed, just sitting in your bed just by yourself. We lay hold of the forgiveness of sins in the greater son of David who surely died. And it's by faith alone, not mingled with works. And it's by faith alone that we are invited to partake of the table of the Lord because the table of the Lord represents the death of the Son of God on the cross. And this is what God was preaching in David in Bathsheba. And this is how God has been preaching his Son in types and shadows. But as the scriptures say, the reality is in Christ. The substance of all that was being done was in Christ. Praise the Lord. Okay, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne. Lord, we praise you and glorify you and thank you for your son, the greatest son of David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He who died that we may have forgiveness of sins. And as the Lord said, He has taken away our sins, and we shall surely live. And we live because our Lord Jesus Christ lives. And Lord, may you bring remembrance of these things to your people in that hour when they shall be faced by death.
may they be reminded that the Lord has taken away their sin from them. And even though the body is perishing, they live. And we live because our Lord lives. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.